Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Topic actually is, is heaven for real? And what about hell? We die, and then what? We've talked about death recently with death of a church member. In the news has been this death of Robin Williams. And I'm not one to determine where people go when they die. But there's a, a lot of discussion about what happens when we die and a lot of different views on what happens when we die. So, some say that we just kind of dissolve into nothingness or we cease to be. Others say that we actually come back again and get a second shot at life to do it better the next time. Some says that we go to, an, to a place, in, uh, kind of a holding tank where we get a second chance. And others say that there's a final destination that we go to. In fact, many of us grew up in churches that talked about a place called heaven and a place called hell. And you might have heard of a, a movie that's out, um, it just came out recently, it's on video now, Heaven is for Real, about a little boy who believed he had an after-death um, experience, where he actually went into this place that he believed was heaven, and actually met people that had died before, people he'd never met, and these incredible experiences he had, even meeting Jesus himself. It's hard to believe there's not something after this life. But you know, those aren't the only experiences some people experience something very traumatic. There's a man named Bill Weiss who was a Christian real estate um, broker, and he had this experience. 23 minutes in the middle of the night, he, he had this vision, this, this very traumatic vision that he actually went to the edge of hell and he experienced things that were so, uh, so life-shaking, so traumatic that he came back out of that. He's no longer selling real estate. He's sharing his story around the world. He did, actually didn't want to tell his story to other people because it was so, so riveting, so terrible, but it was like God was compelling him, you've got to share this news. Is there really a heaven? And is there really a hell? Because a lot of people, in fact, a lot of church people have a hard time believing that. More people believe in heaven than believe in hell. And one of the issues people wrestle with is this. If, if we say our God is so loving, how could that kind of God find delight in putting people in this torturous place called hell? I cannot reconcile the two. But I'm here to tell you today that God is a God of love. And what if this, what if this were the case, that God loved you so much that he made a way so that none of us would ever have to go to a place like that? What if God loved us so much that he'd make every effort to help us to know this truth about a different path we could take in our lives? Because what if it's up to us to choose where we want to spend eternity? What if there's something we can do this side of death that could determine where we will spend the rest of our lives? Wouldn't you want to know that? And there's nobody uh, that speaks of the eternal life more than Jesus Christ. And nobody speaks more of hell than Jesus Christ. Isn't that ironic? The most loving person that we would say ever walked this earth says the most about this place, describes this place more than any other human being has. And so we're going to look at Jesus' words, a story Jesus told. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. And before we look at this very critical topic, I want us to open our hearts. Because for some of you, today is your day of decision. Today is the day you need to decide where you want to spend eternity. Today is the day for you to decide that I'm not going to be a complacent person. I'm not going to be a bystander. I'm not going to just consider things. I'm going to make a decision, just like that family made a decision today. So, Father, we come before you humbly today, and I pray, Father, for grace and understanding that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see your love as, as spoken through Jesus Christ, but also, Father, realize that you've offered us an incredible opportunity to choose life today, and may we choose it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from over there to us. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I want to share with you several truths we learned from this passage and other teachings of Jesus. The first is this. We were created to live forever, and this life is just the prelude. God made us to live forever. This rich man, we don't know how he became rich. We just know he lived in luxury every single day. He wasn't generous with what he had. He lived it for himself. And he died. But death wasn't the end. There was an existence after death. There was another man in this story. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor man. In fact, he said he longed to eat the scraps from the table of the rich man, which kind of implies he didn't get much from the rich man. The rich man didn't share much with him. In fact, his only comfort was the dogs that would come up and lick the sores on his body. He died also. But there's this beautiful picture that the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Wherever Abraham was, sounds like a pretty good place, he got taken to where Abraham was. But the rich man was in a very different place. Where the rich man was was a place of agony, a place of torment. And he was told that there was a chasm fixed between the two, that neither could cross to the other, that it was final. But they were now living a new life, a different life, but an eternal life in a different place. God made us to live forever. And you need to know, the Bible says that all of us will live someplace forever. We will live someplace forever. Death is not final. But death makes certain things final. It makes our decisions final. The decisions we make on this side of death are final. It's kind of like the exam the teacher gives. And as the clock winds down, the teacher says, okay, put your pens down, close your book, it's done. At that moment, you can't go back and change your answers. You can't go back and undo the things you wanted to do. It's done at that moment. But that's not the end. That prepares you for what's next. Because there's the grading period, and and then there's other things that go on in your educational life. But that point becomes a, a, a point of finality. But it's not the end. It's a point where everything that's been been worked up to that point is sealed. It's concluded. It's done. We can't go back and make changes. Now, there are a lot of different views of what happens after we die. Buddhism says that when we die, we are reincarnated. 
But the actual, the highest level of Buddhism is you actually go to nirvana, this place of nothingness, where you actually kind of dissolve into this great oneness with the universe and you lose your individuality. That doesn't sound too exciting to me. Hinduism says you come back as another being, maybe another animal, you come back reincarnated, you get to try it all over again. In, um, in Catholicism, there's a view that when you die, you go to a place called purgatory and you get a second chance. Mormonism says someone else can help rescue you out of that place of death by making decisions for you. But I'm not going to debate or, or discuss those as much as just to say, Jesus says, once death comes, you, you enter into another kind of life forever. And it's a life where there aren't second chances. Now, it's not my view, but it's what Jesus is saying here. He made us to live forever, and everyone lives someplace forever. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And you notice the same words used of both, everlasting. Some will go to one place, some will go to another forever, because God made us to be immortal. He made us to live forever. Forever. Now, I, I would be fair to say that the rich man went to Hades. And Hades, according to the Old Testament language, was actually kind of the place of the dead. Now, it's almost like the, the vestibule before hell. Because the final judgment hasn't happened yet. And where Lazarus is by Abraham's side isn't full heaven because it's like the vestibule of heaven because the final judgment hasn't happened yet. But already they're be- beginning to experience a taste of what that everlasting life will be. We were made to live forever. And number two, we will live forever with God or apart from God. Everyone will either live in God's presence or away from it. Well, what is another word for God's presence? To live forever in God's presence is what we call heaven. Heaven. Heaven is an incredible place. Paul, a follower of Jesus, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, was in prison. He wrote a lot of the letters. And, and he said once to a church in Corinth, to be absent from the body is to be at home or to be present with the Lord. That being in the Lord's presence is a state of heaven. Now, in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God made Adam and Eve, and God walked in the garden among them. But when they rejected God's plan for their life, when they rejected his provisions for them and said it wasn't enough, we're going to do it our way, they cut themselves off from God. They were removed from God's presence. But then God put in motion a plan to deal with that sin. And you know what? Every single person who's followed uh, in, in this course of life, following the very same footsteps of Adam and Eve, we've rejected God's provision, and we've been removed from his presence. As Sam said, your sins have separated you from your God. But God put a plan in place to bring his son to this earth to deal with our sin issue so we could be reunited in his presence. Jesus went to the cross to deal with our sin. And before he went to the cross, Jesus said something real amazing. John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus is speaking to his disciples of what's to come. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Would I have said that if it wasn't true? I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can be where I am. Jesus is preparing a place so that we can be together forever. That's what heaven is. A little later, someone asked him, well, Jesus, how do we get to the place? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my father. No one gets to my father's house except through me. I bring them there. I'm the way to get there. Being in God's presence is where we were made to be. 
That's why the saints of old had this view that they could tolerate the persecutions of life. They could put up with even death on this earth because they long, it says, they long for a better place. They were just aliens, sojourners on this earth because their home was in another land. They looked forward to that place, that place called heaven. What will heaven be like? Well, one of the beautiful songs that's been out in recent years is I Can Only Imagine. I can only imagine what it's going to be like. But you know, the Bible gives us pictures of it. You can, you can read through the book of Revelation, and, and what Revelation is trying to tell us is, is as good as I can describe it, John says, it's better than that. It's trying to use words to help us to think of, a, of a, an incredibly wonderful place where there's no more pain, no more, no more sorrow, no more death, no more wars, no more disease, no more hate. A place of peace and rest where the lion lays down with the lamb. That's what heaven is like. Think of the best things on earth magnified, only better. That's what heaven is. Heaven is a place of eternal joy. In Psalm 1611, it says, there's lasting joy and pleasures in the Lord's presence. So to be with God in his presence is a beautiful thing. It says in Revelation, they will drink freely from the spring of the water of life. Don't you want to go to a place like that? But there's another place the Bible talks about, a place where none of that is present, a place that is totally apart from God's presence. It's called hell. Hell. Hell is a place apart from the presence of God. It's just as real as heaven. And over and over again in Jesus' parables, he describes this place. And oftentimes we want to skip over those scriptures because we don't like what they say. But I just want you to know it's Jesus saying them. I struggle with them sometimes, saying, Lord, is this really true? Is this really what you meant when I read this? For example, in Matthew 25, there's this parable of the sheep and the goats, and it says, when you do these things to the least of these, when you feed the hungry and you clothe the naked and visit those in prison and you help them, you're a sheep, and, and you get to go to this eternal place of, of joy in, the, in God's presence. But for those who ignore those needs, those who live selfishly for themselves, like the rich man did, here's what he says will happen. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Same word prepared as in John 14, 2. There's been another place prepared. And it wasn't really prepared for humans. It wasn't, be, it wasn't really prepared for you and me. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because they rebelled against God. And they were removed from God's presence. And they were going to be removed forever from God's presence. So God made this place called hell where they would reside forever. But it was never intended that any person would ever go there. It's like when the, when the founders on this great continent came over, they didn't build prisons right away. Do you know why? They really didn't want anyone to go to prison. They had to build prisons when people became rebellious. It was the second option. And God created a place like this for those who would choose not to follow God, not to live for God, who were contrary to his purposes. 46 times in the Gospels, Jesus gives descriptions of this place called it. 46 times. And Bill Weiss, who wrote that book, 23 Minutes in Hell, says one time he was attacked by a tiger shark at the age of 17, but he says that paled in comparison to the 23-minute experience that he had. Here's some of the things Jesus says. It's a place of fire and darkness. You wonder how those two can exist. Well, fire most likely refers to judgment, not literal fire. The fire of God's judgment. 
But the darkness is the separation, the isolation, the loneliness. It says that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's sorrow, anguish, and regret. Like, ah, ah, constant regret. It's a place that says where the worm does not die. Now, in, in the time Jesus lived, there were dumps. And oftentimes the dumps were filled with the carcasses from the animals that were used in the sac- for the sacrifices. And the maggots and the worms were there continually eating away, never at peace. He says there's a foul smell. There's no comfort, no joy. Hell is the opposite of heaven. If every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father in heaven, then hell is absent of that. Just as darkness is the absence of light, Hell is the absence of everything good. You and I probably don't realize it enough, but we live in a world where God has given us so much grace. He's given us so much kindness and compassion. We take it for granted that all these good things we see on this planet just came from Mother Earth, and they didn't. They came from Father God. You look around at every every other planet and and, um, heavenly body, there's not one that looks like this planet. Why is it like this? Because God says, I love my, my creatures so much. I'm giving them a foretaste of eternity so that they would long for me and hunger for me, see how wonderful and powerful and gracious I am and want the full thing. But instead, people take it for granted. See, it didn't come from God. It just happens to be here and it'll always be here. In fact, I don't mind if I go to a place called hell as long as it's like earth, but it won't be like earth. It won't be like earth. It'll be like the worst of earth magnified. Well, people will say, I think hell is something we create in our minds. Well, you can't create a hell in your minds, but that's not the hell Jesus was describing. He was describing a very real place. Well, I'm going to be okay if I go there because all my friends will be there. They may be there, but there's no fellowship in hell. There's no joy in hell. You won't have friendship and relationship there. Well, why would God send anyone to a place like this? God doesn't send anyone there. God gives us what we've chosen. God extrapolates the choices on this earth and says, this is the direction of your life on earth. Let's just take it out to eternity. If you chose to live without me, you chose to reject my plan for you, then you'll have it that way for eternity. God gives people what they choose. C.S. Lewis says, hell is a monument to human freedom. It's a logical consequence for those who've chosen to shut God out of their lives. But I believe God is love. And I believe that love wins in the end, that everyone is saved. Well, the Bible does say that God is love. But it's interesting, in our Western culture, We love to grab a hold of that virtue of God that God is love. We find it offensive that God could be a a just God. But if you go to the Middle East, do you know what they find offensive? A loving God. Because they believe God has to be just. Kind of depends on where you've grown up. But the truth is God's both. The Bible says God is love. The Bible says God is just. Sin must be punished. But love trumps sin by the sense that God says, I will provide a way out of this just punishment by sending my son to die in your place. My son will experience hell for you so that you can be free. And so love wins, but only for those who accept his love. To those who reject his love, God will be just and will give them what they deserve. 
I know a youth pastor years ago, his name's Les Christie. Les Christie was very frustrated that on Sunday nights when the kids came from, for youth group, several of the kids were perpetually late. So he decided that since youth group started at 6.30, he was going to start locking the church doors at 6.30. And pretty soon he had kids pounding on the door, being very irate that he wouldn't let them in. And what he discovered was those kids were, were being selfish. They weren't being considerate of the people that were on time. They weren't being considerate of the leaders who prepared this meeting. It was all about themselves, and they wanted things done their way. And so he shut out their selfishness. Hell is a place for people who care more about themselves than about God. Why should good people go to hell, Pastor? There's a lot of good people. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, I could understand if someone was a child molester or a mass murderer, terrorist, but I know a lot of good people. You're saying because they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell? Well, we find justice satisfying when we believe the crime was justifiable. For example, if it was your child that was kidnapped, raped, and killed, and you were in a courtroom and the judge says to that man, you will spend the rest of your life behind bars, there's a sense in you that says, I'm good with that. That's just, that's right, that's what he deserves. Let me ask you this. When a good person says, God, I don't love your son. God, I will not surrender to your son. I will not listen to his teachings. In fact, I'll, I'll conspire in his crucifixion, which the Bible says we're all guilty of that. I'll conspire in his crucifixion. I'll kill your son, God. Do we call that a good person? Is that a good person? When we say, how can a good person go to hell? Who is the good person? We look at just the the things that happen in our culture, but in God's view, how you treat his son determines whether you're a good person or not. God doesn't owe us anything. We're saved by his mercy and grace. We meet him on his terms. Chick-fil-A, whenever they open up a restaurant, and I hear they're going to open one up in Fountain sometime in the next year or so, that's going to be real exciting, they offer the special deal. For the first 100 people that meet these guidelines, these rules, first 100 people that show up at Chick-fil-A get a free meal every week for a year. You just have to be there at the right time and, and obey these little rules, do what they say and fill out these forms and do these things and you get it. Now, if you came the next day after they gave out those 100 and said, hey, hey, that's not fair that you only gave it to 100 or that's not fair that, that you only gave it to those that were there that day. That's not fair. It is fair. Chick-fil-A doesn't owe anybody a free meal. It's grace that offers 100 free meals for every week for a year. And we have no right to demand that they do it differently. Who are we to tell God when he needs to open his doors, how he needs to open his doors, what the terms are to enter into his family forever? God in his grace says, here's, here's the way. Here's the way to enter. It's a way of grace. I'm not asking you to, to perform extraordinary feats. I'm just asking you to do this. Trust my son. Receive him as Lord of your life. Live for me. That's it. It's pretty simple. And yet we can stand back and say, but I don't like that way. I want another way. God, there's got to be another way. You owe me another way, and God doesn't owe me another way. It's his house. 
He can determine how to get to his house. Heaven and hell are real places, and everyone will live eternally in one of those two places. Another parable Jesus told in Matthew 25 is a parable of these virgins, ten virgins, and five of them prepared for the, the wedding feast by putting oil in their lamps. So when the bridegroom would come, they could light their lamps and march in the procession to the wedding. But five of the, of the virgins were foolish, and they didn't bother getting oil in their lamp. And when the t- day came for the wedding, they weren't prepared. And so they rushed out, and they, they looked everywhere, and finally got some oil, made it to the bridegroom's house. The door was already shut, began to pound on that door and demand that they be let in. But the bridegroom came to the door, and here's what he said. Go away. I don't know you. I don't know you. It's relational. Where we will spend eternity is highly relational. In fact, eternal life is more about a relationship than a residence. It's more about a person than a place. Fanny Crosby, who wrote many of the old hymns, was blind. And yet in many of the hymns, she wrote about heaven. And at the first sight in heaven will be the sight of her Savior's face. Heaven is about Jesus. I know heaven is a beautiful place, but sometimes in our minds, we can picture heaven as like this this resort on the Mexican Riviera. And it's sunny all the time, and the waves are crashing up, and we've got our little drink beside us, and it's nice. And if God shows up now and then, that's okay, because at least we've made it to the resort. But you need to know that the focus of the resort is Jesus. In fact, heaven is wherever he is. Hell is wherever he is not. We see eternal life sometimes as being a place, but eternal life is not a place. It's a relationship. Heaven is a place. Eternal life is a superior quality of life. I want to urge you not to make heaven your goal. I want to urge you to make Jesus your goal. Because here's what Jesus said about eternal life. John 17, verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that you have a relationship with God and with Jesus Christ, his son. This is eternal life, not a place, not a, not a, a, a place of pleasure, even though that is coming. He says, eternal life is being in relationship with Jesus, having a relationship with God right now that starts today and goes through eternity. Eternal life is a relationship. And so I want to urge you to have a relationship. Christianity is not about keeping rules. It's about cultivating a relationship. Heaven is not for people who do the right thing. It's for people who've desired the right thing, who love God more than they love themselves. See, I could scare you, paint this horrible picture of hell, and say, who doesn't want to go there? Come forward right now. I could paint this incredible picture of heaven and say, who wants to go to a place like that? Come forward right now. But in either case, what I'm catering to is selfish desires. Because it's about you, what you don't want to experience or what you do want to experience. I wanted to shift your thinking. I want to shift your thinking to say, to look at Jesus, that you would desire him more than anything, that you would hunger for Jesus more than anything. That wherever Jesus is, you want to be there with him. Because eternal life is about a relationship. It's not about a residence. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth 
God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, heaven isn't, eternal life isn't like getting this ticket. That, man, I've got this ticket. You know, I said a prayer. I got baptized, whatever I did. And I've got this ticket. It's in my pocket. And when I die, I'm going to say, God, remember me? I don't remember you. Ha, I got my ticket. Got my ticket, God. I don't think it works that way. I don't think we pull a ticket out. Got my baptismal certificate right here. I got, got my signed prayer right here, God. God's going to say, I, I don't know you. Did we ever talk? Did you call on me? Did you, did you listen to what I was trying to tell you? I wanted a relationship with you. All you wanted was a free pass to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Eternal life is having a relationship with him. Now here's where it gets real sticky. Because I think this hits a lot of us that come to church. What about someone who says, I want just enough God to qualify to get me in? I mean, I'll show up at church once in a while. I'll throw something in the plate. I'll say a prayer now and then. Is that enough to get me in? What do you think? What do you think of a man who marries a woman? Says, I, I want to marry you. And she's all excited. Says, oh, yeah. you want me? You want to marry me? He goes, yeah. But during the marriage, he shows up a few nights a week for dinner. He contributes a little bit around the house. He, he, he offers some advice once in a while on raising the kids. He tells her, I'm pretty faithful to you sexually. Pretty faithful. Is she going to say, ah, you're a pretty good guy anyway, come on. Share my house with me. Share my life with me. No, you'd say, that despicable man, he says she was everything to him. He's not living like it. And I wonder sometimes for us, is my focus on just doing enough to kind of say, God, I'm in, right? Or is God the passion of my life? Is God the center? God, I want, I hunger for you. I wake up in the morning thinking about you. God, I open my Bible because I'm hungry to learn about you. I can't wait to get to church because I get to praise you. Because that needs to be our desire, that we hunger for him, that everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. God wants a relationship with us. And if it's not a relationship we're pursuing and developing, we're missing the mark. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm not here to question your relationship with God or your salvation. And we shouldn't do that with other people too, no matter what religion and no matter what denomination they're part of because we're not on the jury. We're on the invitation team. God called us to be part of the invitation team, not to sit on the jury. What that means is I have the privilege of letting people know God invites you into his family. It's like that story Jesus told of of those who went out to the highways and byways and says, come on, everybody, everybody's invited to come to the master's table. That's our job. We don't have to worry when people say, pastor, what do you think about the person who's in that kind of church over there? And they teach this. I say, you know, God's judge. God will be the judge. In fact, we're reminded in James chapter four where James wrote, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We're not called to be judges. That's God's job. Because God has the law. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's law boiled down to those two things. And God will be just to judge people according to his law. 
But for us, we're on the invitation team. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, I love how Paul describes our role. He says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors. We represent a kingdom. We get to extend the invitation of the king to the people around us, that God does love you, that God has done something for you and invites you to be part of his family. He didn't tell us to go and preach fire and brimstone. He told us to go and share good news. What's the good news? God loved you so much, he gave his one and only son to die for your sins so you could have a way to live with him forever. That's good news. I am so glad that I get to be part of that because I don't want to be a finger pointer. I don't want to be the pulpit pounder who's trying to frighten people in. I want to woo them in through this incredible, amazing love of God. And here's a beautiful thing. God gives people the power to decide their future destiny. We get to decide. And the fact that you're here today means you'll never have an excuse to say, God, you never told me. And for many of us, we've had many opportunities this whole idea that, that God should give us a second chance after we die kind of falls apart when we realize God has given many of us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, 52 chances a year. He's given us over and over and over again the opportunity. But here's what I've discovered. The longer you put off that decision and the older you get, pride starts to build up and it gets more difficult to give your life to Jesus. And if you're one of those who for year after year after year, you just, you're just kind of hoping I'm, hoping, I'm hoping I'm in. I'm just hoping I'm good enough. But you know in your heart that you've never fully surrendered to the Lord. Then you need to be looking at yourself and say, God, I don't want to miss out on eternity with you. See, there is a time coming, the scripture says, when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it says that those people will be in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. What it says is this. There's coming a day when every person in heaven and on hell will recognize the fact and confess freely, Jesus, you are right. And some are going to do that with great joy, and some are going to do that through anguish. Jesus, you are right. Now I want to be one of those that says it with joy. And God isn't trying to play hide and seek. He's not trying to make this difficult. He says it's pretty simple. It's so simple that I always like to present it with the very first letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D. A, it starts by admitting you've sinned. God, I, like Adam and Eve, have rejected you, have gone my own way. I am guilty of my sin. I deserve death. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the B is our response to believe in Jesus to believe what Jesus did for us. In, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And believe is more than just head knowledge. It's, it's more than just mentally agreeing. It's trust. It's entrusting our lives with that truth. And it shows in letter C, a commitment to Jesus. A commitment to Jesus. To tell and turn. To turn, which means to repent. To tell, which means to confess. It says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that times of, ref 
so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He says that we should confess him, Romans 10, 9. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We commit to him. We publicly commit. We make an about face with our lives. We say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And we seal that with the decision to die to ourselves and to live for Jesus. We saw that this morning in this act of baptism. It says in Acts, excuse me, Romans chapter 6 that we were buried with him to death through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We live for him now. We live this new life. I love how Paul describes it in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I myself no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. When someone's baptized like that family today, says it's no longer about me, it's about you. It's all about you. It's about Jesus. God wants a relationship with you. And everyone here is going to live somewhere forever. And you get to decide. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to bow your heads right now. And if you're someone who's maybe missed the mark, you pursued the wrong thing. You thought that maybe you could get into heaven just by doing a few good things, but really your heart wasn't about Jesus, about loving Jesus, about desiring Jesus, living for Jesus. Then today's a day for you to correct that and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I hunger and thirst for you more than anything else. For those of you who may be very new to the church, this may be the first time and you've had questions, know this, that God is just, but God is love and love speaks louder. Love wants to get the final voice. That's why God sent his son into this world to die for your sins. And if you surrender yourself to him, just admit that, yes, you need Jesus. You believe that God sent him to die for your sins. You're willing to turn from your own ways to follow his, to say, Jesus, you are my Lord, and to live like it. Today's your day to decide that. If that's a decision that you need to make today, just in the quiet of this moment, raise your hand and raise it high so that God knows today you want Jesus more than anything. And that wherever Jesus is, you want to be with him forever. Raise your hand wherever you are if that's you today. You want that assurance, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to live for you. I want my life to count for you. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Let's, let's all stand right now. And I'm going to ask if our prayer partners could be available up front. If you raised your hand today, and I couldn't see in the darkness of everybody out there, but if you raised your hand, maybe it was high, maybe it was kind of up, or even if you didn't raise your hand, today's the day to say, Jesus, you are Lord. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.